The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we are restored to fellowship so that God the Holy Spirit can uh, continue His sanctifying a spiritual growth-producing ministry in our lives. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to begin, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that it is an absolute guide of truth for our lives, a beacon of light that shines upon all the issues that we face in life, gives us a divine viewpoint framework for understanding everything that we deal with in life. And from the basis of that absolute foundation, we can go forth and live a life in confidence, knowing the truth, knowing your word. We can be confident of our salvation and our relationship to you, and we can rest and relax in your provision, your control, no matter what uh, problems or adversities or difficulties we face in life. Now, Father, as we look at these important verses in Hebrews 6, we pray that you would challenge us with the message that's here, this tremendous challenge and warning that the writer of Hebrews gives to uh, his, his readers, and that this warning is just as true for us today as it was for them in uh, about 65 A.D., Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and this is the beginning of one of the uh, one of those passages that people debate and they get uh, all upset about every now and then because they think that this means they can lose their salvation. Actually, the real tough section doesn't come until verses 4 through 6. And we're probably not going to make it out of the first three verses this evening. So we'll have to wait until I get back from uh, the trip to Israel before we uh, get into the hard stuff. So I get to teach the hard stuff when I get back and get jet lagged. I just love it the way things work out sometimes. Okay, Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion... Of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on, let us press on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Here's what um, we need to recognize at the very beginning is that this word, therefore, can translate any number of Greek words at the, that are, we find at the beginning of a of a verse or a section where a conclusion is being drawn or an inference is being made. And the Greek word that's used here is dio, and it has a little stronger sense than the standard uh, word that we would expect to find here, which is un. And it throws our attention right back to what has been said. We, it tells you that, that uh, the writer has made several points in the previous verses, and on the basis of what has been said... You can almost say, because of what I just said, on account of what I just said, for the reasons just stated, 
now we move on to this, uh, this conclusion and this point of application. So what precedes this verse is encapsulated in this therefore. Now just for a review, this section begins back in verse 11. This is one of those uh, challenge sections in Hebrews. Remember I pointed out that he makes a point, there's sort of a didactic or teaching section, and then that's followed by an application or challenge, an exhortation section. Within that exhortation, there is a warning in each of these sections. In the first two sections, the warning and the uh, exhortation are identical. But in this section, the exhortation, the challenge, the application began in 5.11 and extends down through the end of chapter 6, down through 6.20. But the warning section itself is primarily encapsulated in verses uh, 1 through 8. So this is the uh, warning section 1 through 8 or more specifically 4 through 8. So the therefore draws from what he's just said. And what he's just said is to really uh, reprimand them for their spiritual condition, they've become dull of hearing. And the word there we saw indicates that they've become lazy, complacent about their spiritual life. They are, uh, in fact, they've gone into a reversal. And they've regressed in their spiritual growth, in their spiritual life, such that they have become dull of hearing. And rather than be, being at a stage of maturity where they could explain or teach the word, and verse 12, he says, once again, you have to go back to the first principles of the oracles of God. And that word, first principles, that's used there in the Greek is stoicheia. It has to do with the building blocks of, of anything. And in philosophy, they had a certain set of first principles. Uh, in some of the philosophical thought in early Greek, it was that the first principles, the basic elements of, of uh, the matter of the universe was... Uh, earth and water and and uh, fire and air, and so that stoicheia was a word that was used to describe those uh, first principles. Here we're talking about first principles related to Christianity or the ABCs of Christianity or foundational doctrines to Christianity. And so he says, because you've regressed spiritually, we have to go back to first grade and second grade information. We have to go back to the basics. And he goes on to describe this as milk in verse 13 and says that you have to take in milk because you're unskilled. You're not practicing the uh, message of righteousness. You're putting that, not putting that into application in your life for your babe. And the word we saw for babe is the Greek word napios, which although it's sometimes in a few places... It's used to refer to an infant. It's primarily a word that's used in a very negative uh, sense to describe someone who's much older that's acting like a baby. It has a negative sense. It's not like brephos or technion that refer to a, a spiritually a new, recently converted believer who is a, a spiritual infant, but someone who should be older, should be acting more mature, has had the time and the opportunity to act mature, but instead they're acting like a spiritual baby. And then he concludes by saying solid food or spiritual meat belongs to those who are of full age, that is mature, those who by reason of use practice. And that's what where we fail is people come, they just take in the Word of God, they just keep their doctrinal notebooks together, they just learn a lot, but they don't go home and practice. They don't make it a priority to think about the, pro, the, the issues in life, the decisions of life, and say, okay, I need to face every decision as if it's a crisis doctrinal issue, and I need to put into practice those spiritual skills, those problem-solving devices uh, that we all know. And so because they don't exercise or discipline themselves in the application of doctrine, they don't, they've lost the ability to discern good and evil. And so we had several extended lessons on practicing the doctrine of discernment and that discernment only comes from a reservoir of doctrine in your soul. It's not something you can uh, accumulate or pull together in just uh, a week or two or, or even a year or two. 
So when we read verse 1, therefore, he is saying, therefore, because you have become lazy, you've become uh, backward in your spiritual growth, because you are spiritual sluggards, therefore, let's uh, go forward. Let's advance. And that's the challenge, that's the mandate that we find in verse 1. He says, therefore, and then there's a participial phrase, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And that word for elementary, again, is the same word we have back there in verse 12, translated first principles. It's the Greek word starche. It's therefore leaving the ABCs related to Christ, the ABCs related to uh, the basics of Christology. Now, there's a lot of folks who would sit back right now and say, well, I've gone through some of those lessons you have on Christology, and they're not exactly basics. I had, I've had people who should know better tell me that. They are basics. If you listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, he's saying those are basics. Salvation, doctrines, redemption, reconciliation, atonement, uh, propitiation. All of these are basics. Let's get beyond this. Let's not be like, like some churches where the pastors have uh, 2,000 different sermons uh, all on salvation. They never get beyond that. Whatever they're talking about, it always comes back to the same, uh, same verse, the 502nd time or the 831st time, but it's always the same thing, and you never get beyond, beyond the basics. So we start off with this, command, this uh, statement to leave, but it's tied to the main verb. I think I've got the main verb here on the slide. Let us go on to perfection. That is the challenge in verse 1. That is the main verb. It is uh, it's a present passive subjunctive. And, a, and it has the sense of something that is to be uh, a predominant characteristic. That present tense indicates something that's ongoing, something that's habitual, something that's characteristic. Now, when we look at it in the in the English, we say, "Well, let us go on." That that seems to be a command. Why isn't that in the imperative? Well, that's just a function of Greek grammar. It's a subjunctive mood, but it's called a, a hortatory subjunctive, and that means that the writer is giving a command to his readers, but he's going to include himself in the command. So it's let us do something rather than you go do this. He's saying let us. He's saying just as I am pressing on or advancing to spiritual maturity, I am challenging you to join me in that same challenge, to press on, to go forward, to advance to spiritual maturity. So that's the essence of this verse. He says, therefore, let us press on, let us advance to perfection. And the word for perfection is a form of a word we've seen many times, teleotes, which means maturity, not perfection in the sense of flawlessness. That's what everybody thinks of in terms of perfection. And then there's always a few people and denominations down through the years who think that you can have sinless perfection, but that's only because they have a very diluted, watered-down, narrow sense of sin. If sin only consists of the, you know, terrible two or the uh, fearsome five or the nasty nine, then it's real easy not to commit those two, five, or nine sins. But if you start thinking about arrogance and you go home tonight and you get by yourself for a little while or before you fall asleep, you start thinking about all the ways that, that arrogance manifests itself in your life, we suddenly realize that everything that we do is permeated by our self-absorption at times and, and that, that sin is, is much deeper and much more profound than we want it to be. It's not just... Uh, overt sins. It's not just certain things that we find offensive. It is something that is deeply embedded in our constitutional makeup as fallen creatures. And that's what happened to uh, Adam when he ate from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. He was changed uh, profoundly, internally, constitutionally, in the inside. He's not, he's, he's not sick. He's dead. Uh, spiritually dead. And that affects 
Uh, every aspect of his being is impacted by his by his fallen nature. Now, if you're trying to witness to a Muslim, or if you're trying to witness to uh, a lot of just secular uh, Americans, they don't really believe they're they're sinners. They don't understand what that means. They they've got they they restrict the meaning of sin in a lot of ways. Muslims think of sin only in terms of something that is blasphemous to Allah. So murder, adultery, mass murder, genocide, terrorism, these things aren't sinful. It's only sinful if it is a direct affront to Allah. Muslims believe that men are born basically good. And the Bible says that no, that's not right. We're all born basically evil. It's not the old book, I'm okay and you're okay. The Bible says, I'm not okay and neither are you. And we were born that way and we're going to stay that way apart from the grace of God. And so we start from a position that man is inherently evil. And when you look at those sweet little babies or you have a sweet little baby and you look at that cute little sweet baby, it's just a sin nature wrapped up in flesh and that's what why the Bible calls the sin nature flesh so just a bundle of sin right there as cute as it is as sweet as it is it's just sinful it's fallen it's totally depraved every aspect of its being is depraved that's what total depravity means total depravity doesn't mean it's as bad as it can be it just means in the totality of its being every dimension of its of its soul is affected by sin and is fallen and is under the condemnation of God. And this is one of the great watershed doctrines and beliefs in history is whether or not man is basically good or basically evil. For those of you who are more politically inclined, I would encourage you to read a book by Thomas Sowell called Conflict of Vision. Thomas Sowell is one of the most profound political thinkers around today. And he's done a, an excellent study of understanding why there's a conflict and basic worldviews of people. And I've, I've never forgotten his, his introduction, the prologue to his book. He talks about the fact, raises the issue of why is it that when you talk about different political, social issues, whether you're talking about... Um, justifying sex between a couple of uh, homosexuals and legitimizing their sinfulness, or whether you're talking about uh, how you're going to deal with the uh, illegal immigration issue, whether you're dealing with uh, economic issues such as taxation, uh, issues related to uh, Marxism, socialism, capitalism, no matter what these issues are, isn't it interesting that no matter what the issue may be or no matter how diverse they may be and unrelated the issue may appear to another issue, for example, immigration being related to capital punishment, that if you believe one way on immigration, you probably believe a certain way on capital punishment. You probably believe a certain way on uh, what you think about legalization of homosexual marriage. And all those people will tend to always think the same way about these disparate, different issues. And they'll all line up over here. And people who take the other view all line up over here. And why is it that you always find certain people on this side of the political or economic or social issue, and you always seem to find the same people lining up on the other side of the economic, social, or political issue? even though those economic, political, or social issues don't seem to relate to each other. What's the underground, the presupposition that is really determining it? And Sowell does a magnificent job of showing that the people who end up on the conservative side are people down through history who believe that man is basically evil, that man is basically fallen. People who end up on the, on the liberal side, on the on the liberal side socially or economically or politically, they all believe the man's basically good. So what this shows you is that what you think about what the Bible says about the nature and condition of man is going to have an impact on all kinds of things that you 
think about in life. How you view your role as a parent. How, because if you think ma- the children, babies are basically good, that's going to impact your view of your role as a parent. They're basically good. You don't really need to, to uh, paddle their little behind. You don't need to have, have harsh discipline and teach them to control that little sin nature because they don't have one. They just, you just let them run free and make their own decisions and discover life and give them all the options in the world and let them make up their own minds. But if you believe that that's just a little sin nature wrapped up in, in, in a bag of flesh, then, then what you've got to do is teach them self-discipline and control. And uh, you have to realize that it's your job as a parent to give them that sense of right and wrong and, and self-mastery. If you don't do it, nobody else will. It's not the school's job. It's not the uh, Sunday school job. It's not the job of the church. It's the job of the parent. But, of course, if you believe those things are the job of the parent, then you're not going to be on the other side because the other side, based on an assumption that the child is basically good, thinks that the government can handle their training and that the public schools can do all of those things, and, and they really don't need to be that involved. It'll just sort of come naturally. So all these things boil down to whether we think that man is, is basically good or basically uh, sinful. And the Bible makes it clear that we're not perfectible. There's no such thing as perfection in the Christian life. It's maturity. That's the idea in the word here, that we are to press on to maturity. And even as mature believers, we'll still sin because we still have a sin nature within us that is as capable of committing horrible, heinous, shocking sins, uh, just, just as capable as it was before we were saved. And there are going to be times when you may commit some sins that, that uh, shock you, that shock your friends, shock your family, but you're still saved. Uh, that's what we're going to get into when we get into the second part, that it, you don't lose your salvation. But if you continue in that state, there may be dire consequences, irreversible consequences on your spiritual life if you continue in carnality beyond a certain point. So the challenge is here to press on to maturity. Now, to press on to maturity automatically implies the opposite. There are some things that you're not going to do. And what, it's, what the text says that we're not going to do is to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, before I get to that last phrase, I want to go back and... and uh, clarify that participial phrase at the beginning that I skipped over. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, that participle is probably a a participle of manner. They're not defined in the Scripture. In this manner, we're going to press on. We're going to press on in this way by leaving behind these elementary principles. And it's the idea of leaving behind is the uh, Greek word afiemi, which is that same word that's used for forgiveness over in 1 John 1, 9. It means to leave or to forgive, to let go, in some cases to desert or to quit. That's the literal meaning. But it's used with a uh, metaphorical meaning in the sense of... um, leaving something behind, moving on to the next stage. So we have the idea here, in this manner, uh, we're going to press on to maturity. We're going to leave behind this discussion of the basic ABCs of Christianity. In other words, if you want to press on to maturity, you've got to uh, grow up, you've got to get off the milk of the Word of God and onto the meat of the Word of God. There was an, an article, it's a cover story article, for Moody Monthly, Moody Monthly, Moody Bible Institute is is Jim's old alma mater, uh, where he went to uh, school up in Chicago, named after Dwight Moody. And uh, I remember this article stood out in my mind. I read this; uh, this must have been 35 years ago. And the title of the article was "Grow Up, Baby Brother." Of course, it dealt with the weaker brother issue, but that was the title of the article: "Grow Up." And yet, nobody today wants to grow up. Nobody today has a real vision for producing uh, maturity. And to produce maturity, you have to have in-depth Bible study. I had a conversation today with 
the young man who is driving this RV around the country for Lagos and there the the company decided on this marketing tool to try to make the person in the pew aware of the fact that they've got these great Bible study programs. It's not just for uh, pastors and, and men who know Greek and Hebrew and the languages and all that, but it's something that, that's very easy to use for the average person in the pew. So they thought that they would take this RV and they would go around the country, get different churches to host them, and they could come in and put on their, their demo, which is what they're going to do tomorrow night, put on their demo to acquaint people with what's available. And it's a great product, and I think that it has, has tremendous uh, tremendous uh, benefits for uh, not just pastors, for, but for anybody. And I don't know that it's necessarily for everybody. I'm not selling it. I'm not promoting it other than to pastors. I encourage all pastors to get it because it really makes a difference in your uh, just good tools to have. But um, they've been very disappointed in this in this marketing. They got a lot of big churches that volunteered to host them. Big churches that don't teach the Bible. So they get 30 or 40 people show up in a church of four or 5,000. They wonder, well, what's wrong? It's because you're going to churches where nobody's, they don't emphasize Bible teaching. You don't emphasize Bible teaching. Nobody has a value for the study of the Word of God. So they'd rather go spend you know, $500 or $1,000 instead of buying a computer program on the Bible. They'd rather go on vacation for the weekend. And so it's just again and again and again, city to city to city, they've had a problem. They came to Houston, and we've got over 110, 120 people uh, that are supposed to show up tomorrow night, which is pretty good considering they had like 25 show up two nights ago, or no, 13 showed up two nights ago in San Antonio. So it's a, it's a matter of do people really want tools to study the Bible, and they're really interested in studying the Bible. But we live in a world that's characterized by these Hebrew sluggards today and not a world that's characterized by Christians who really want to seriously pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in the Word of God. And part of it is that they don't realize that there are negative consequences for failure. The negative consequences aren't that you'll lose your salvation in the sense that you uh, will lose your eternal destiny in heaven. But as this writer points out, you will lose rewards, you will lose blessings both in time and in eternity, and you may also reach a point in your spiritual regression that's a point of no return and you can't recover and uh, you're going to go through the rest of your life as an example of divine discipline and you will live your life uh, as a test, as an, op- uh, an object of testing for everybody around you. Now, wouldn't that? How many people want to be that way? The reason God's left you alive is just so you'll be a real pain in the rear for everybody around you, and give them an opportunity to grow to spiritual maturity. Well, that's basically what he is, what he's saying here in in uh, Hebrews six. So he says, "Let us press on." This is a command. It's a mandate for all of us. Let's not. Relax and regress. Let's press on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, one of the interesting things about this last phrase is that it clearly shows that these are saved people, that they are regenerate, that his readers are regenerate. They're not unregenerate. They are regenerate because of the word again. Let us not lay again. That implies that they have already laid this foundation. Now, the word that is foundation here is a word that's picked up and used in a couple of other key passages. What's the foundation? 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And it has to do with the person and the work of Christ. All that's tied together. We get it in an encapsulated form at the Lord's table. But the foundation is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ and what did He do? If you understand that and believe it, then you are going to have an eternal destiny in heaven. Who is Jesus Christ? 
Jesus Christ is not just a man. He wasn't just a great prophet. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just um, uh, a religious innovator, which is the, the lie that's been promoted for 200 to 300 years of, of the Enlightenment ever since the uh, early 1700s. Jesus Christ is, as the Bible claims, He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who has become flesh. He is eternal in His deity. He is only finite in terms of the beginning of His humanity. He is fully God and He is uh, fully man. He is the foundation. Who He is is crucial to what He did because He is who He is and He is absolute perfection and sinless, born of a virgin, therefore He didn't inherit a sin nature. He is without sin, and He lived His life without sin. He didn't inherit a sin nature. He was not, did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. He did not commit any individual sins, which we studied already going back to our study in Hebrews 4, uh, 14 and 16, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tested in all points as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, that he was impeccable. And because of that impeccability, he's qualified to go to the cross. So who he is can't be separated from what he did. What he did was to die on the cross as our substitute. In his own body, he bore our sins on the cross. He was in our place. He was our Substitute. He paid the sin penalty so that that was taken upon himself. He couldn't do that if he wasn't who he was. If he wasn't eternal God and true, true humanity in one person, he couldn't do what he did. So you can't separate the who from the what. And you can't separate the what from the who. You can't have, well, I believe Jesus and, 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 he, and I'll go to heaven and not believe in the who he is. So once you understand those basics, then you can go forward in your Christian life. And that involves a lot of different, a lot of different doctrines as you develop that. Another passage is Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here the apostle Paul is talking using the metaphor of a, of a building to picture the church. This is the invisible organization that is, that is made up of all those in the church age who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And here he pictures the apostles and prophets as the foundation, but the cornerstone on which the foundation which holds the foundation together is Jesus Christ. So when we come to Hebrews 6, 1, this is a metaphor that's been used again and again in the Scripture that this is this foundation relates to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we're not going to lay, a, lay again. This is a present middle participle. In the middle voice it means to lay something down to uh, the active voice is to throw down or cast down, but in the middle voice it means to lay something down, and thus it's the word that's used with uh, themelios to lay down a foundation. So this is the foundation of uh, Christianity, and it relates to two things. Num number one is the repentance from dead works, and number two is faith toward God. These are two sides of the same coin, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Now, before we interpret this last phrase, we need to ask the question, remind ourselves, who's he addressing here? To whom is he speaking? He's talking, remember, to believers who were Jewish, probably Jewish priests, well-schooled in the Old Testament and the sacrifices and the offerings uh, they came out of the Levitical priesthood for the most part. And so he is talking to them in terms of their religious background. It says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, repentance is one of those words that everybody gets all confused about. This morning when I was teaching my class over at the college, I asked a rhetorical question and a couple of students haven't figured out I ask a lot of rhetorical questions and so they answered and I said 
I said, what's necessary to be saved? And I heard three people say repentance. <laughs> What's the first thing you have to do? Be saved. Repentance. Now, that's not what the Bible says. What is the one book in the New Testament that you would have somebody read if you wanted to make sure they were going to understand the gospel and go to heaven? What, what book would that be? Not Romans. Not Song of Solomon either. It'd be John. John 3 is a good chapter. But the Gospel of John, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Gospel of John is written primarily, everybody agrees with this, you know, liberals, conservatives, everybody's going to agree the Gospel of John was written to tell people how to get saved. How many times do you find the noun repentance or the verb repentance in the Gospel of John? None. You find the word faith 93 times in the Gospel of John. Believe on, believe on, he who believes in, in the Lord is not condemned, but he who does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God uh, is condemned already because he has not believed. Don't say anything about repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Where do you hear repentance in there? Earlier in that chapter, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, uh, you know, we know you're a great Bible teacher, and he's just kind of beating around the bush, and Jesus says, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Did he say repent? No, he didn't say repent. Nowhere in the Gospel of John do you have the word repent. So if repent is a necessary step in the order of personal salvation, then you can't get saved reading the Gospel of John because he never tells you to repent. So, well, let's go back to the drawing board on this repentance. Now, there are some people uh, in, in GES that believe that re every passage of repentance that mentions repentance in the New Testament is really addressed to Believers in their post-salvation experience. And I'm just not quite ready to go there. There's a couple of passages where I'm not convinced that it's not addressing unbelievers. But it's a good point. For the most part, the, the noun and the verb for repentance focuses on something that's to take place in a believer's life, not an unbeliever's life. But I think there's, there's a place here where repentance may be addressed to what happens at that beginning stage. Now, the word repent is, here is the noun metanoia. Metanoia, and it means a change of mind or a change of thinking. It is not an emotional term. One of the things that uh, I found out early on when I started doing a little cross-cultural work over in Kiev and in Mogilov back in the old days, Jim. See, if you had no Jim's here, so he's very familiar with this. The Russian word for confess in 1 John 1 9 is remorse, right? Have remorse. Now that changes your whole meaning. It's, it's this emphasis on feeling guilty, having remorse for your sins, somehow trying to impress God with. Uh, uh, how sorry you are that you've committed some sin. And so if the, tra the translation you use has a word that indicates remorse or emotion or guilt, which is true in a number of other languages, then you really have to do some work at, at correcting that impression. It's even true in English. If you look up in Webster's Dictionary, you look up repent, remorse is one of the definitions for, for repent. But that's not what the, um, what the Greek word means. Metanoia. Meta is the preposition meaning after. Noia is from the noun for thought. And it's a change of thinking and not a change of emotion. There is a word for that. It's metamelamai and it means remorse or it means to, to feel sorry for, for something. And sometimes they're connected. Sometimes we have remorse that leads to Repentance. We feel sorry for things. We realize that we that we really blew it, and uh, so we we have a sorrow 
uh, we feel sorry about something and it leads to that change of mind, but it's not the emotion that's important. It's the change of mind. It's the change of thinking. It's the, the repentance that takes place. And so what they're changing their thinking about in this phrase is not, um, is not particularly related to Christ, but it's a repentance from dead works. That's the focus of their change of thinking. As Jewish believers uh, in Judaism, at Pharisaical turn of the, uh, of the century, for our first century Judaism, they thought that it was their good deeds, their religious observance that impressed God. It was by uh, praying uh, seven times a day and, and going to the temple and by making sure they, especially if they were influenced by the Pharisees, making sure they didn't violate not only any of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law, but they didn't want to violate any of the oral tradition uh, as well, and which was built up like a fence around the Mosaic Law to make sure they, they wouldn't violate that. All of the traditions of the Pharisees, and that was their idea that if they... Uh, avoided the violation of any of those commands, then they could impress God and God would uh, approve of them. So they had to lay a, uh, there had to be a foundation laid there where they realized that none of that counted for anything. None of that counted for anything, that all of their good works, all their righteousnesses were as filthy rags, the scripture says not. It doesn't say all your unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. You already know that. It's all your righteousnesses that are filthy rags, all those good deeds that that you think impresses God, getting up in the morning and reading your Bible and praying and and going to church and witnessing and all the things that we do we think somehow impresses God. It's the right thing to do, but we don't do it to impress God. We don't get any brownie points for it, and it doesn't uh, get us anywhere. These are, If we do it in the filling of the Spirit, then it's part of our spiritual life and our responsibility and we're fulfilling our responsibilities as believers, but we don't do it to get God's grace and to get His, to get His approval. So they had to, uh, at their beginning of their spiritual life, they had to recognize that dead works didn't get anywhere, so there had to be a change of thinking there. They had to reject the legalistic thought of Judaism. And the opposite of that was that instead of trusting in Good in, in their repentance and good good works, they would have faith toward God. The object of their faith would be toward God, not just a generic faith toward God. If you took this verse out of context and isolation, then you might think, well, all I have to do is believe in God and I'm saved. But see, that's why you have to compare Scripture with Scripture and look at the total context and realize that it's not just simply believing in God that gets you saved. You have more specific passages in the Scripture that tell you that the focus of your faith is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then at that instant, uh, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ and he sees that and declares you to be righteous. It's all done simultaneously, but there's a logical progression. There's imputation, justification, and then regeneration where you are born again. You receive a new human spirit, a new, uh, new spiritual life. So this happens at the very foundation and is the beginning of that new spiritual life. So the first thing he mentions is that in order to go on to maturity, we have to set aside the teaching on these basic, basic doctrines. So basic doctrines begin with salvation by grace. That's foundational. And then we come to the next, uh, the next phrase. Let me back up here. Well, I must have a slide out of order. There it is. Hebrews 6.2. The next one is of the doctrine of baptisms. The doctrine of baptisms. That's the second thing that's considered basic. It's interesting because most people don't understand the doctrine of baptism. And if there's any doctrine uh, other than the salvation that's been argued over and fought over as much as 
anything else down through the history of the church. It's over, over baptism. And then he's going to go on to say the laying on of hands. What does that signify? Of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All that's considered basic doctrine. And going beyond that is what's important for spiritual life or spiritual growth. So we're going to spend some time understanding the doctrine of baptisms. And this is the plural of the noun. It's a genitive form of the noun uh, baptismos. And it's the teaching related to baptisms. Now, notice that there's a lack of courage among most uh, Bible translators. Let me see if I even have this operation. Yes, I do. My goodness. Here's my uh, Libronics tool. Let me see. I had this up earlier. There is a, there we go, compare Bible versions. Now, I don't know, can you all read that? Is that large enough where some of you can read it? This is one of those neat little tools in, in the program that allows you to compare different different Bible versions. You can have as many in there as you wish. And the uh, four on the right are compared to the New American Standard uh, Bible as the base comparison on the left. Now, if you read in verse 2, it says uh, the New American Standard translates baptismos as washings. Instruction or teaching about washings. The New King James Version is the one on the far right, and the uh, pink-shaded phrase is the phrase that is in the base version, the New American—I mean, the New American Standard—and the blue indicates where the vocabulary differs in the translation. And the New King James Version and the one just to the left, the second one from the right. Uh, is the uh, n- uh, New Revised Standard Version. These two transliterate the word baptisms. But if you look at the ESV, which is a new translation that's just come out, the English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is also a recent translation, uh, these translated washings. So you avoid the whole debate about baptism if you translate baptismos washings. Now you're somewhere else. See, everybody's a coward when it comes to this word. And the reason we even have the English word baptism is because of theological cowardice. Because back in the early church, somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century, uh, let me go back to the right slideshow here. Back in the 3rd or 4th century, somewhere early on, they started sprinkling instead of immersing, which is the main idea and the, the noun and the verb for, for uh, baptismos. And then after Constantine uh, got, got saved and, and uh, made Christianity the official religion of the, Ro- of the Roman Empire and, and started merging church and state, that you had to be, eventually got to the point in, in many of the European countries that in order to be a, considered a good citizen of the state, you were also a member of the Roman Catholic Church. And entry into the Roman Catholic Church was through baptism, infant baptism. You were sprinkled when you were a child, so, so that enters you not only into the church, but into the state. So you confuse the two ideas, and you have this church-state confusion, so that your, your citizenship in the political state is identified with your membership in the Roman Catholic Church. So that if you come along and you begin to challenge their, the Roman Catholic doctrine of baptism, it's a political statement as well. You're committing an act of treason or tyranny. So it's a death penalty. And this is what happened uh, later on, for example, in, uh, in Zurich, which was the headquarters for uh, one of the great German-Swiss reformers, Ulrich Zwingli. And when some of his uh, students, uh, Felix Mons and Conrad Grable and, and uh, uh, Blaurock, Georg Blaurock, I believe, when they began to come to a Baptist understanding that, no, it's not, doesn't, you don't get baptized when you're an infant because you haven't made a decision to trust Christ yet. It, it's only valid if it's after you're saved. When they began to come to those decisions, that was treated as political treason, and so 
they were, the death penalty was imposed, which was ironically drowning. So they took them out into the <laughs> into the lake there in, in, in Zurich and, and drowned them. So you just have all these wonderful things that go on. So when they started translating the Bible into, from Latin into the language of the people into English, you've got this political theological football of baptism. We don't know whether if you translate it, dipping or immersing, you've taken sides in the theological debate. You might be considered a traitor politically. So let's avoid the whole thing and we're just going to transliterate it. And instead of translating it from baptism into immersion, we're just going to create a new English word, baptism, and it's just as ambiguous and nebulous as the original, and everybody will be confused, and we can avoid the whole issue. So, you know, these translators have historically taken cowardly positions like that a, a number of times to avoid the issue, and that's what they've done here by, in many of these translations, by just translating it washings. So we're going to look at the introduction to baptism here, and we won't get to through everything, but we'll cover it more when I get back. Baptism, the Greek verb is baptizo, the noun is baptismos, and it means to dip or to plunge or to immerse. That's its sort of its core meaning, but it has a significance that's different from that, and the significance is that of change. It indicated, you can go back and you can trace this through a classical literature and many different examples. It's used by uh, all through classical Greek. Uh, different people, all kinds of different people were baptized. Socrates was baptized, and Plato was baptized, and Aristotle was baptized, and Alexander the Great was baptized. Everybody had some kind of baptism, but it doesn't always mean that they were immersed in water. It means some sort of initiation or change is taking place, such as hot metal is baptized and becomes cold metal. Or a young soldier, a Greek hoplite in the uh, Greek army, after he finishes basic training, would take his his um, spear and he would he would just dip it into a bucket of pig's blood, and that would identify it with the blood, indicating that there was a change. Now he was a uh, entering into the warrior class, and he was a a blooded soldier. He was had finished his basic training. So that this is the idea of of baptism. The meaning, dictionary meaning, is to dip, plunge, or immerse. But its its um, significance is usually that of identification, or uh, identification of a change, or initiation comes at the beginning of a new phase. A change has taken place with the object or the person or the event. So they're moving from one thing to another. So that's the main idea of baptism. So in the Bible, there are uh, various different uh, baptisms. In fact, there are eight different baptisms in the Scripture, and they are all representative identifications, eight different baptisms. Three of them are ritual baptisms, and that means that if you do the math, that five of them are what we'll call real baptisms. Okay, three ritual baptisms and five uh, real baptisms. The three ritual baptisms are all all involve water. A couple of the other ones involve water also, but in a different sense. Uh, the first of the ritual baptisms is the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. This is a unique baptism. It's identifying Jesus with the plan of God. When Jesus came down to the Jordan in Matthew 3, 13 through 17 to be uh, baptized by John the Baptist, this was the initiation into his ministry, the beginning of his public ministry and his identification with with the Father's plan uh, of salvation. The second baptism, which is the, actually the first that shows up in the New Testament chronologically, uh, but it's broader, it's different. Jesus was not baptized with John's baptism. That's the second one. Is the baptism of John the Baptist. This is not the same thing because Jesus wasn't a sinner and John the Baptist was calling sinners to repentance, so that didn't apply to Jesus. The baptism of John the Baptist identified the person who's being baptized with 
uh, in water with the kingdom of God. It's interesting. I got in a, a funny argument with somebody not too long ago that uh, Dr. Chafer had so many wonderful things to say, but Dr. Chafer was a Presbyterian. And Presbyterians believe in sprinkling. And if you've never read it in Chafer's Systematic Theology, he has a very extensive, detailed, and wrong explanation of how John the Baptist's baptism was sprinkling. <laughs> but he was a Presbyterian. And, and pe- a lot of people don't realize it, but a lot of the faculty at Dallas Theological Seminary in the early years and even up through the 70s were were ordained Presbyterians. I had Dr. Ed Dibler for church history. He baptized, sprinkled all of his children. And uh, Ed, uh, Ed Bloom, who at one time was pastor of Bethel Presbyterian here, uh, had also sprinkled. And Dr. Walvard sprinkled his children. When he was in the early years, back in the 40s, he was pastor of a, a Presbyterian, North, I think it was North, at that time it was Northwest Presbyterian Church, and I think that was the name of it, in uh, Fort Worth. So, uh, you know, they're, they're just there were a lot of Presbyterian influences there, but he was wrong about that. It was, it was you can't make sprinkling get sprinkling out of baptism, but this was John's baptism. Then you have the third water baptism in the New Testament is believers' baptism. Believers' baptism. This is what's indicated in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and twenty. This is what's indicated in in uh, other passages such as Acts two thirty-eight and forty-one, Acts eight thirty-six to thirty-eight. You get into Acts 19, when uh, which is pretty late in Paul's career, and he's in Ephesus, and the disciples of John the Baptist show up, and here's a bunch of really Old Testament believers. They've been baptized with John's baptism, and they show up in Ephesus, and they've never heard anything about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the cross, and they show up, and, and what's Paul's first question? Whose baptism were you baptized with? And they said, well, John. He said, well, we're going to go down and we're going to get baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's done immediately. Water baptism, for believers' baptism, was a visual representation of what took place in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is one of those, and positional truth, just the name positional truth has some of you going, Huh? Uh, just some of those terms are so abstract that people really don't understand them. So God in his wisdom, just like in communion, gives us these two elements of unleavened bread and, and grape juice or wine as to picture the person and the work of Christ. So we have a real simple training aid for sheep. Remember, sheep are sheep, not because they're warm and cute and cuddly, but because they're dumb and stupid. Being a sheep is not a compliment. Uh, we We have these simple little visual training aids so that we can come to understand these important complex things. So believers' baptism was pictured in water baptism. It's a picture of what happens to every believer at the instant of salvation that they're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are cleansed from sin positionally and enter into a newness of life, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. So those are the three ritual baptisms, and we're running out of time, but I'll go over the, 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 four, uh, <clears throat> the four dry baptisms. First of all, there's the baptism of fire, which is judgment at the end of the tribulation. Those are identified with fire or judged. There is, in the life of Christ, there is the baptism of the cross, where he is a... Uh, identified with our sins. There's the baptism of the cross. He told Peter, he says, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Then the the, uh, the third one is the baptism of Noah. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. The, I'm not Noah, the baptism of Moses. The baptism of Moses. And, of course, the only people that got wet then were the Egyptian soldiers, and the people who were dry were the ones who were saved. And all of the those who were identified with Moses and his faith in God and followed him through the Red Sea stayed dry and were delivered, and it was the Egyptians that got wet. And then First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, talks about a baptism of Noah. It doesn't use that word specifically until you get to 21. It says, 
Those who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The eight folks on the ark didn't get wet, but they got saved. Everybody else got wet. Verse 21, And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Huh. We'll have to spend a little time on this verse. Because it's not saying that you're saved by water baptism. Because remember, the people who got wet with Noah died. They, they all drowned. So, but it is a type, and that's what the word that is used here is antitupas, is that what happens with Noah is the antitype, or is, yeah, is the antitype. And so, of baptism, or excuse me, it's the type, and baptism is the antitype. So it's a picture of, once again, of spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Well, we'll tear that apart and take a look at it because that's one of those things that everybody always wonders about. But Peter makes it clear right there in the appositional phrase. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not water baptism that saves you, which is what Church of Christ teaches and a number of other people but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we'll take a look at that passage and go through these on baptism and then look at the uh, significance and importance of baptism for the church age when I get back from Israel in about three weeks. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be reminded that, that these things are very important and we need to press on to the teaching of the Word that is produces maturity, that's the meat of the Word, that we may grow to maturity and more fully uh, glorify You in all that we do. Father, we pray that we will not treat the things that we learn here lightly, but that we will seriously study them and think on them, that as God the Holy Spirit makes their application clear in our own lives, that we will follow suit with a proper application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.